The reading is from Matthew 17, uh, starting to read at verse 1. After six days, Jesus took with him Peter, James, and John, the brother of James, and led them up a high mountain by themselves. There he was transfigured before them. His face shone like the sun, and his clothes became as white as the light. Just there, just then there appeared before them Moses and Elijah talking with Jesus. Peter said to Jesus, Lord, it is good for us to be here. If you wish, I will put up three shelters, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. While he was still speaking, a bright cloud enveloped them, and a voice from the cloud said, This is my son, whom I love. With him I am well pleased. Listen to him. When the disciples heard this, they fell face down to the ground, terrified. Jesus came and touched them. Get up, he said. Don't be afraid. When they looked up, they saw no one except Jesus. As they were coming down the mountain, Jesus instructed them, Don't tell anyone what you have seen until the Son of Man has been raised from the dead. The disciples asked him, Why then do the teachers of the law say that Elijah must come first? Jesus replied, To be sure, Elijah comes and will restore all things. But I tell you, Elijah has already come, and they did not recognize him, but have done to him everything they wished. In the same way, the Son of Man is going to suffer at their hands. Then the disciples understood he was talking to them about John the Baptist. When they came to the crowd, a man approached Jesus and knelt before him. Lord, have mercy on my son, he said. He has seizures and is suffering greatly. He often falls into the fire or is into the water. I brought him to your disciples, but they could not heal him. O unbelieving and perverse person, Jesus replied, how long shall I stay with you? How long shall I put up with you? Bring the boy here to me. Jesus rebuked the demon and it came out of the boy and he was healed from that moment. Then the disciples came to Jesus in private and asked, why couldn't we drive it out? He replied, because you have so little faith. I tell you the truth. If you have faith as small as a mustard seed, you can say to this mountain, move from here to there and it will move. Nothing will be impossible for you. When they came together in Galilee, he said to them, The Son of Man is going to be betrayed into the hands of men. They will kill him, and on the third day he will be raised to life. And the disciples were filled with grief. We're beginning uh, a series now of uh, questions that come to us from uh, Matthew's Gospel. And this is the first, uh, as you will see, of uh, a series Uh, that we are going to pursue through the whole of August as um, various people come and go. So these are questions. Let me use one illustration that might uh, help as we come to the reading, Matthew chapter 17, verses 1 to 23. And we're going to try to focus in the whole of the passage on this one question. Questions, if you like, are the grappling hooks by which we can climb the sheer summit of truth. I don't know if you see on television these people who climb these massive mountains and you wonder how on earth do they do it. Little specks of humanity when you look up to them and what are they dependent upon for life is the grappling hooks that will hold them. Questions are a bit like that. 
Questions, however, can be sharp. They should not be feared. Neither should they be discouraged. For questions are the very hooks by which a person climbs from doubt to faith, even if they are hard to handle, as we were praying just now. Interestingly, this series, uh, which uh, we have before us, and you see from the program, are questions that are not put by Jesus, as you often find in the Gospels. These are the ones that are put to him. They are put to him by various people, the disciples, as is the case now, and by others in the course of his life. And each of them comes from Matthew's Gospel. Just look out for one thing if you do, if you are here for all of these questions, or indeed even this one. And it is, the one factor that prevails throughout is this. That these are not sort of questions that are speculative. Like, you know, you have Alpha or Christianity explored. And you can, you can tell people are asking questions indirectly out of mere curiosity. Or a, a refusal to commit their lives to Jesus Christ. They're a sort of a charade that prevents them from trusting in him. These are not questions like that at all. They're not theoretical questions that you would have in, in university or within a Bible college where the lecturer will tease out something. They're not questions like that. They are practical. They are purposeful in this sense that they come from the difficulties of life. They are often questions that people would be reluctant to ask, and yet they must. They come from difficulties of life's experience. Sometimes we are in situations and people will say, How, can you make any sense of that? Can any good possibly come from such a situation? Well, these are questions that are posed, if you like, from the, the trauma of living. The trauma of relating to other people. Why ever do people behave like that? How can people take that from my conversation? I didn't intend to mean that at all. That's part of life's experience. And what we have in each of these uh, uh, questions from Matthew's Gospel are three things. And these are going to be the outline that we'll pursue this morning and possibly uh, on several occasions in August. The first is this, there's always a context. The context is important. I remember uh, on, on a, a Monday afternoon, my day off, Hand and I were in Oxford and we were going through the, the covered market in Oxford. If you've been there, you'll know. And towards uh, coming out the, of the, the rear end of the market, there was a group of men with blood all over them and one had a knife. In context, they were taking a break from the abattoir <laughs> and having a cigarette. Out of context, I should have phoned the police, shouldn't I? The context is everything. And the context here for this question is exactly the same. Context is so important. And out of it, of course, the question, and then finally, the conclusion. What do we take away from a sermon? So, first of all, the context itself is the transfiguration, which is recorded in uh, the three Gospels, Matthew and Mark and Luke. 
It's a key event in the life of the Lord Jesus because he's glorified on the Mount of Transfiguration and he makes the connection, though the disciples don't, with a greater glory on a greater mountain and in a greater encounter, the cross itself. And they fail to make the connection, as often disciples do. Interestingly, John, in what is called his prologue, he reflects on this. And it's read at Christmas time, isn't it? We tend to think, well, that part belongs to Christmas and that to Easter and so on. And he says, and we beheld his glory. The glory is the only begotten Son of the Father, full of grace and truth. And we need to make the connection to see his glory in the trauma of life. So the context is the transfiguration. What does that mean? Well, the literal meaning is it's a metamorphosis. It's a change. Stay with me on this word. It's not intended to be clever, but to be clear in this sense that it is a change that comes not from without, but a change from within. The literal meaning is this. The glory is not a reflector, which we have in our cars, where you need a light to shine in it for it to function. It's not a reflector light, an outer light. It's a revealing light. It's a revelation, an inward light, an inward glory. That which Jesus brings to the situation. And interestingly, this word metamorphosis or change, change from within, it will be the conclusion of the sermon as we'll take up the hymn Love Divine where the climax is changed from glory into glory till in heaven we take our place. This metamorphosis that takes place in the lives of believers who trust in Jesus Christ. And the connection, of course, is when Paul is writing to the church in Romans 12, verse 2, where he says, do not conform any longer to this world, and he uses the same word, metamorphosis, be transformed by the renewal of your mind. Think differently, relate differently, live differently, die differently. This wonderful spiritual metamorphosis, which is going to become the experience of God's people. But here, on the Mount of Transfiguration, being transformed, being glorified in front of the disciples, it really points to the Christian's growth, that we're going to be changed more into the likeness of the Lord Jesus. So, transfiguration, here's the context of the question, is a picture a wonderful picture of the coming glory, the, the, the king coming in power, in glory, in purpose, in salvation. And not for the first time like disciples now as then. Look at verse 4. Peter misses the point altogether. The world is littered with relics that are utterly meaningless. And Peter wants to build one there. Peter said to Jesus, verse 4, it's good for us to be here. If you wish, I will put up three shelters, three monuments, three tabernacles or whatever they would be called. And he's paying a compliment, he thinks. One for you, one for Moses, one for Elijah, in that order. And Peter missed the point. And so in verse 5, while he was still speaking, a bright light eclipsed 
overwhelmed, enveloped them. And a voice from the cloud said, This is my Son, whom I love. With him I'm well pleased. Listen to him. Listen to him. And when the disciples heard this, they fell face to the ground, terrified. But Jesus came and touched them. Get up, he said. Don't be afraid. And so on. I, I think in sometimes in church we can, we can miss the point. We may well have a good structured sermon, but we miss the point. There is this wonderful encounter, and this is the context for it. Let's look at the question. In verses 14 to 21, now, notice carefully, um, it isn't a question of doubt as such, like a seeker. Actually, it is, it is a question of inadequacy or perhaps failure. What do you make of uh, verse 19? The, the, you, you'll see that they come down from the mountain, they meet the trauma of life, um, a child possessed with some spirit that they, they, they can't deal with. And the disciples are bewildered. And in verse 19, they came to Jesus in private, sensing their failure and asked, why, why couldn't we do that? Why couldn't we drive it out? Why, why can't we deal with the demons that impact people's lives today? There's this real sense of powerful inadequacy. Why aren't we sufficient for this? Let's stay with this word for a moment and think about it in our own Christian lives. Inadequacy. It's a daunting experience. If you haven't done your prep and you go into an examination, you are going to be inadequate. And the examiner will not be impressed with waffle. One of the many experiences that we have in life is this. That from time to time, even the most articulate, the most able, will struggle in situations where they will say, I'm not up to this. And we get stuck, if you like, in the quicksand of our feelings and our weaknesses. Sometimes we can't free ourselves from them. It may be our background. Maybe the way that we were brought up and we have a real sense of unfailure. And we might say, why didn't my parents really love me? Or it might be that we just had a very poor education and we have to go through life always proving ourselves. Or that we're the sort of people who've struggled with ill health and how unfair it is when others are so well. reading this uh, book called High Call, High Privilege by Gail MacDonald. She says this, and I think you'll find this helpful. My husband and I have occasionally felt on the edge of an ill-defined despair. Those were times when we felt a variety of things. A desire either to quit or run, a feeling of anger, the temptation to fight back at someone, the sense of being used or exploited, the weakness of inadequacy, and the reality of loneliness, such attitudes can easily conspire to reduce us, the strongest and the most gifted, here's the punch, to a state of nothingness. 
Why couldn't we do that? There's just nothing. Inadequacy is like the gravity. It pulls us down and it's hard to resist. Nothingness. That's what we're left with. Inadequate to overcome long-standing habit or addiction or a prevailing negative attitude that in situations always surfaces. And people talk about us and say, well, that's what he's like. The inadequacy to stay in a marriage that is unfulfilling. To live with a disability for the rest of our lives, which is daunting. It's part of life. And the disciples here face this head on. And the heading here is this, admitting your inadequacies, if you like, facing your own demons, not projecting them onto other people, is the first step towards accepting God's solution. But if you do that, you make yourself, of course, vulnerable. You have to repent, you have to say sorry. And some people go through life refusing to do that. Admitting your inadequacies is the first step towards accepting God's solution. But secondly, accepting Jesus' challenge, and you see that here, accepting his challenge is the only way to resist this gravity pull that's in our humanity. And so they ask the question, why couldn't we do this? Why couldn't we drive it out? You might be a bit disappointed in the sermon in this sense that I think Jesus is more interested in what he can do in his disciples at this point than what he can do through them. It's not so much the prayer, it's the prayer. The person praying. Because he's going to deal with that and challenge them in a way that they didn't expect. You see, here's the mark of our generation. And of our Lord Jesus. Look at verse 17. It's not, a, it's not a very nice compliment, is it? Oh, unbelieving and perverse generation, Jesus replied. How long shall I stay with you? How long shall I put up with you? It's not a very nice thing to say, is it? Bring the boy to me, Jesus rebuked the demon. And it came out of the boy. And he was healed from that moment. How long must I put up with you? The mark of that generation, and believe me, of ours, is this refusing to believe on the one hand and demanding more signs and evidence on the other, simply to be speculative. That type of thinking. And often people find themselves on the fringe of church life being like that. Being observers, being speculative. Not participating. And Jesus says, not the best way to make converts, is it? How long shall I put up with you? How long are you going to say, well, I'm not very sure. I've got doubts about this and doubts about that. It's pretty poor, isn't it? And if you like that, then you really must stop being like that. That's the mark of the generation. Wanting more evidence. And at the same time, refusing to believe. Even the disciples. And of course, the context of the Mount of Transfiguration 
is that Jesus has revealed himself. And what does Jesus go on to say in verse 20? He replied to, so they've asked the question, what's the answer? He, Jesus replied, because you have so little faith, I tell you the truth. And he uses, of course, it's, it's a, an illustration. I don't think this is literal. If you have faith as small as a mustard seed, you can say to this mountain, what's the mountain that you face in your life? Say to it, face it, go through it, let it be gone out of the way. Nothing will be impossible for you. Little faith, lack of faith, You see, that's our introduction. Their faith must grapple with a bigger challenge. No one is saying the state of the child is irrelevant. But the bigger challenge is this. As Jesus goes on to say, He is to be the Messiah. He is to be crucified. And on the third day, He's to rise again. And they missed the point. And I wonder in church life, you know, if we're a bit like that. Have, have we missed the point that it is about the Lord Jesus who has a greater plan? He has compassion about the malady of mankind. But there's a greater plan and a greater purpose that he was to die in. There was to be a greater glory and a greater life and a greater miracle, the resurrection. And that needs to be emphasized not simply our own particular needs, important though they are. Because every generation fails to see the necessity of Jesus Christ and Him crucified. He so loved the world, He gave His Son. Whoever believes shall not perish, but have eternal life. And it's as if Jesus says, you must face your demons, and I'll help you if you're willing. I'll go into that no-go area of your life. What's the conclusion? What can we take from a sermon like this with a question like this? Well, let me suggest three things that are all by way of application. The first is this, that unbelief robs us of power. That our Christian life is all about words. And it is, it is this power to change. It is the metamorphosis. Be transformed by the renewal of your mind. Think differently as well as live differently. The power to change. And it's no good you and I shrugging our shoulders. We might say it of other people or indeed about ourselves. Well, this is what I'm like. Yes, but why should you be like that all your life? Or is the Christian life merely one that is purely theoretical, void of application or change? I think there are some churches that you can go to where you can just have all your prejudices confirmed. No change. But somehow Jesus is taking them out of the comfort zone where Peter says, let's build a little community and one for you. You're, you're the tops and Moses and Elijah and everything will be well in the world. But the conclusion is they come down from the mountain. They see hum humanity as it is, embarrassing in its raw emotion and failure. And that's where the gospel comes. 
That's where it comes. And why couldn't they cope with it? Because they have little faith. Unbelief robs us of power to change. And unbelief robs us of power to trust. Well, we've got our securities and we're not too bad off. There's always people better off and always people worse off. So, touch wood. But why don't we trust? After all, we ought to be a community of people who trust the Lord more than we would trust ourselves. Unbelief robs us of that. And it robs us of living well and dying well. Power to face our own failures and ask the embarrassing questions. Why can't we do that? Why are our prayers so impoverished? Why have we given up on prayer altogether? We need to face our own failures, our demons, if you like, in this context, and repent. Unbelief robs us of power, but little faith robs us of blessing. Here is blessing that's going to come. And so, in verses 19 and 20, why couldn't we drive it out? And Jesus replied, because you have so little faith, so little faith. Little faith robs us of God's best. I want to uh, quote from this um, commentary by Spurgeon. I'd forgotten I had this on the shelf. And uh, th- this, is, this is what, um, what he says here. Uh, verse 19. This is a very proper question. When we make a failure, failure let us own up to what we have failed. Let us take the blame for it ourselves and apply to our Lord for his gracious intervention. When we are beaten, let it be said of us. Let this be said of us. And they came to Jesus in private. Go to him. Perhaps not even a church. Go to him. They came to him privately. They were troubled by this. Ask him and see what he has to say to you. You may well ask, where is the blessing? Where is it? Where is this love, joy, peace, generosity, gratitude? Where is that attitude that once I had and somehow I seem to have lost it? I was reading this excellent book, How to Be a Motivated Christian, and there's a lovely illustration here. Let me read it to you. Just to see in terms of little faith or what is our attitude A rich man came out of his private club one evening and walked over to his sparkling new Cadillac. As he approached, he saw a shadowy figure hovering over the car and discovered that it was a boy too close to his car for his liking. He grabbed him and asked him what was he doing. The boy said he was studying his car. Studying, he says. Tell me about it. And to the surprise of the man, The little boy gave all the detail of the car more than the owner. They start to talk. And the boy asks the man, is this your car? He said, yes. How much did it cost you? He said, it didn't cost me anything. My brother bought it for me. 
the little boy says, I wish that, and the man said, I'll finish off the sentence for you. You are going to say, I wish that I had a brother like that who could buy a car for me. And he says, no. What I was going to say was, I wish I could be a brother like that and buy one for my father. And so he went on to talk about the need within the family. There you have Not necessarily wrong, but different outlooks on life altogether. I wish that I had, or I wish that I could give. Which is it? Which is it? And is it the impoverishment of our faith that it is so small that it is barely on survival mode? A strong faith gives blessing to others. I hope people see you like that. That you are a blessing. The things that you would want from others. Be to them. Yourself. A gratitude attitude. That makes little faith. To be a generous faith. A giving faith. And lastly. Lack of prayer and fasting. Verse 21. Robs us of growth. Robs us of growth. Let me quote you again from Spurgeon where he says this. Yes, he says, with God all things are equally possible. But to us, one devil may be harder to deal with than another. One kind will go at a word. But others, it may be said, this kind goes out only by prayer and fasting. Then he makes this comment. Our business in the world is to deliver people from the power of the devil... And we must go to Jesus to learn the way. No amount either of prayer or self-denial must be spared if we can thereby deliver one soul from the power of evil and true faith in God will enable us to put up the prayer and practice of self-denial. In an age of self-fulfillment, the hallmark of people of faith, is that we're willing to deny ourselves, to put ourselves out, to be the people who are the vehicle of blessing. Now, what do you make of fasting? Maybe you can have a fast of television. What about that? Say, this week, I'm going to have a fast on the television soaps. No Coronation Street, no EastEnders. How would that work? Or maybe a fast consciously of no longer criticizing people. Catch yourself on every time that you do it because it's become a bad habit. That would be a good fast. Maybe fast. Try going without a meal or two. You'll soon know about it, won't you? These inner pangs cry out and say, I can't do this. Lack of prayer and fa- or if you like, fasting of self-denial robs us of growth. We fail, if you like, to cope with the valley of challenge and opportunity. We are mountaintop Christians. We are not valley low Christians. We like it up there. We don't like it down here. And if we ask questions, well, there's always the let out clause. No, there isn't. Why can't we do this? And it may be it's been a long time since we have denied ourselves. We can talk about prayer. We can speculate about answers to prayer. 
But Jesus is interested in the prayer, the person who prays.